Okay. John chapter 2. This is probably one of the most talked about passages of Scripture whenever you come to the subject of the Bible and alcohol. Uh, This is the story of Jesus turning water into wine. And so we're going to do two things today. We're going to read this story, then I'm going to give you some basic facts out of the Bible about wine and alcohol and its context within the Scripture. Then we're going to go to John chapter 2, and we are literally going to exegete the passage. I'm going to go verse by verse and explain it to you. I'm not going to give you my opinion. I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says. Okay? And then at the end, we'll draw some conclusions or some principles that we need to take away. Then next week, we are going to study several biblical principles that guide us in making decisions about questionable things. And we are going to relate those principles to alcohol and how it affects us in our life as a Christian. But the principles we'll learn next week you can use in reference to anything in life that is questionable. Not just alcohol, but since that's what we're talking about, that's the question that was asked. We will learn the principles, then we'll do a little exercise where we apply it to the matter of drinking and alcohol and and see how they work, okay? So let's start with John chapter 2, verse number 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. By the way, all that means the third day, this was the third day since Jesus arrived in Cana of Galilee. He had been there three days, okay? That's all that means. Um, On the third day, a wedding took place at Canaan, Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Now, what we're going to do is we are going to begin, first of all, by going through just some basic facts in the Bible relative to wine and alcoholic beverages as it's mentioned in the Bible. So I'm just going to kind of discuss with you uh, very informally some of these things. If you take notes, you may want to write some of these things down. This is only a fraction of the information that I researched. Um, There are whole books written on this subject that you can get. 
But we don't have time to do all that now. So let me give you these basics. First of all, let's talk about, in the original languages, the words that are used uh, in the Old and the New Testament, translated wine. And by the way, there are several English words. Wine, old wine, new wine, strong drink. In the NIV, that term for strong drink is quite commonly translated fermented drink or beer in the English language. Um, but let me give you uh, the two main words used. In the Hebrew language, the word translated wine is the word yayin. Y-A-Y-I-N. Its counterpart in the New Testament or the Greek language, which is also used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is the word oinos. O-I-N-O-S. Now in the Old Testament, a term used to refer to wine or strong drink, old or new, there are 194 different times in the Old Testament a term is used in reference to that. 141 of those 194, it is the Hebrew word yayin. So this is the main word used in the Hebrew language for wine. Okay? Um, it can be used in reference to wine at any stage or in any form. The point being, you cannot determine by the word that it's alcoholic or not. You just can't do it. Okay? Because it, it also refers to fresh fruit juice in some instances. Okay? Same thing with the Greek word oinos. In the, in the New Testament, 37 times there are words used in reference to wine or strong drink. 33 of those 37 times it is the Greek word oinos. So, it is the main word used. As a matter of fact, there are only four words used in the New Testament. And 33 times it's oinos. Two of the other four words are only used once, and one of them is only used twice. Okay? So these are the main words that are used in the Bible. Um, another thing. Several times throughout the Scripture, bread and wine are used in the same context. Meaning, bread and wine were common staples at meals with the Jewish people, as well as many of the other, other cultures. For example, you will remember that when Jesus sat with his disciples in the upper room, what were the two main items he used to symbolize his death? The bread and the cup, the wine. Okay? Now, that, that doesn't tell us one way or the other whether the wine was alcoholic or not. Um, and, and let me tell you this. The thing I want you to be aware of, and there may be many of you that, that are not aware of the arguments. I mean, there, i got articles from both sides of the fence. I mean, literally, I've read hundreds of pages. And I, I can tell you this. Those that say that nowhere in the Bible is alcoholic beverage ever approved, they make the assumption that Jesus never made an alcoholic beverage, they make the assumption he never drank one, 
And they make the assumption that any time these two words are used in reference to a situation where it could have been alcoholic, the assumption is always it's not. Even though the context doesn't tell you either way, it's always assumed it's not. All of those are assumptions. That's not what the Bible says, clearly. Now, there's a lot the Bible says clearly, and we're going to see that before we're done. Okay? But what I want you and I to understand is you need to base, and I need to base, my Christian life and how I live on the fact that one day I will stand before God and answer for everything I do. I need to make sure that what I believe and what I do is exactly what I believe the Bible says. Not what somebody else told me. Or what somebody else thinks. Okay? So, bread and wine were used commonly at the table. Again, the context does not tell us necessarily in every instance whether the wine was alcoholic or not. For example, Jesus took the bread. This is my body which is broken for you. Then he took the cup when he had supped, saying... This cup is representative of my blood, which is shed for you. Then he said, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine again until I drink it anew with you in my kingdom. Meaning, he not only drank it then, but he's going to drink it again. Now question, from that passage that I just quoted to you, do we know if the fruit of the vine that was in that cup was alcoholic or not? No, we don't. So those that want to say it's okay can't use that passage to say Jesus did it. And those that say you shouldn't do it can't use that passage to say Jesus didn't do it, it was just grape juice. Because it doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us. Okay? What we do know, however, is it was the fruit of the vine which in every other instance in the scripture, is, is called wine, and Jesus drank it, and he's going to drink it again. So whatever it is, Jesus did it. Now, the truth is we don't know if it's alcoholic or not. Okay? Third thing, facts about the Bible and, and wine and alcohol. There are many, many passages in the scripture that deal with it. As a matter of fact, get you a concordance sometime and look up the word wine. There are numerous passages that deal with it. However, there is never a place in the scripture where God says, unless you drink some wine, you are sinning. You have to drink wine. So, nowhere in the scripture are we commanded to do it. We're not made to do it. As a matter of fact, Quite the contrary. Several times we are told or warned about it. I'm going to give you some of those in just a minute. I'll give you one example. When the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness, Jesus, God, told them as part of their testing so they knew that He was their God and would take care of them, and He was all they needed. He provided them neither bread nor extra clothes, nor wine. Now wait a minute. See, God even said they shouldn't have wine. Well, he also said they shouldn't have bread or more clothes either. 
So if you're going to use that passage to say that God says you can't have wine, then you can't buy no more clothes, which ain't a bad idea, and you can't have bread. <laughs> well, I tried, I tried. Okay? So, again, we want to be students of the Bible. We want to interpret and believe and know what the Bible says. I was reading one of the articles that I read was by a secular woman who was an expert on wine. She was a culinary expert on wine. Didn't claim to be a Christian, but she had been asked to address the subject of wine in the Bible. So she did it from a secular perspective, studying the history of the Israelis and their culture and wine and how it was developed. And then she drew the analogy to the debate among Christians as to whether or not Jesus made alcoholic wine. And in this debate, she basically said whether it was alcoholic or not, I don't know. But she made a statement I thought was very, very apropos. She said, however, I would think that if a person's faith is that important to them, surely it is based upon more important principles and facts than just whether or not it's okay to drink a glass of wine. And the truth of the matter is, we have lots of believers that literally destroy their faith and that of those around them over one little bitty thing that is a minute part and basically has nothing to do with the main principles of why we are believers. So, again, never are we commanded we have to do it. However, it was used in the Bible and quite often was used as something nice. It was used in trade. It was used when kings would come to meet with other kings to bring something nice. They would bring bread and jewels and vats of wine to give to these kings as a gift of a lot of worth. Okay? Now let me give you some warnings in the Bible about this word wine. Yayin in the Old Testament, oinos in the New Testament. Um, we are warned in Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 35, against drunkenness. And I, I don't think that any of us would debate that the Bible clearly teaches drunkenness is forbidden. It's wrong. I mean, over and over again in the Bible, God deals with that matter. Okay? So, we're taught drunkenness is wrong. Also, in that same passage, God warns us against drinking it in excess. Too much. He also, in the same passage, talks about eating too much as a glutton. Again, the, the, the issue is not the wine. The issue is the lack of discipline in excess. That's the principle, okay? But it does address wine. Um, Proverbs 23, that same passage, 29 through 35, also Proverbs 31, verses 4 through 7, and then Ephesians 5 and verse 18. God warns us about wine taking over the control of our thought process or distorting our ability to reason. Anything that does that 
is wrong. Whether it is alcohol, a narcotic, anything. Ephesians 5.18 And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? Let the Spirit of God control you and how you think and how you respond and how you act. Not the influence of an excessive use of alcohol. You know, it's interesting, but a lot of times, the people that I talk to about alcohol, many of them have never even had it. They have no idea what it does to you. By the way, if that's you, stay that way. <laughs> However, there are those of us who didn't. I know exactly what it will do to you. And when the Bible talks about you will see strange things and you will think strange things and you will fall off the mast of a ship and destroy your body and wake up saying, where can I get another drink? I know exactly what that means. I've been there. That is wrong. God doesn't describe that in the book of Proverbs and say, that is a wise person. That is a foolish person. Okay? So the Bible warns us about wine controlling our thought process, distorting our ability to reason and think properly. That is wrong. God warns us about that. Okay? Um, in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1, God warns us against being deceived by wine and strong drink. About being deceived. Um, those who are proponents of total abstinence and those who say that in the Bible it was never approved as alcohol, one of the things that they will say, and it's right, an alcoholic will never be an alcoholic if they never take the first drink. And that is true. That is true. An alcoholic does not become an alcoholic from total abstinence. Okay? Now, here's, here's a medical question. I'm not a medical doctor, so I don't know the answer to this. But how do you know if you're going to be an alcoholic? Okay. So, so we can... We can have an idea. Yeah. I mean, we, we can know that your family has a history or, or I'm predisposed to that. Does that mean you will be one? Not necessarily. Okay. So, again, I'm going to bring up all these issues because I'm not afraid of them. I want you to know the truth. I want you to be able to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with anyone and tell them what you believe God says about the subject. Because our most important asset is our testimony for Christ. And anything that hurts that needs to go. However, we don't want to create our own set of rules that God didn't create. Okay? So, um, we need to be careful. We can be deceived. Oh, that'll never happen to me. That's what I said. 
I'll never get drunk. Wrong. I'll just eat one plate of food and stop. Wrong. So, now, by the way, why is this stuff so difficult? Because of our what? Our flesh. We've got that sin nature. And we're all going to have to battle that thing. But please understand, wine and alcohol is not the only part of life that we battle that with. We battle that in every part of our life with every issue that Satan can find any way to use to hurt us. Okay? Alright, um... Let me give you a couple of instances where people got drunk and it wasn't a good thing. Matter of fact, if you study the Bible, many there are several examples of people that got drunk. You can't find one of them where it was a good thing. It never was. Let me give you two of the most blatant. Noah. Remember when Noah, in Genesis chapter 9, he got drunk and you know what he did? They got his clothes off. I hope y'all are not laughing because that happened to you. His sons walked in backward and had to cover him up. Now why would that have happened? He got drunk. What did the alcohol do? It distorted his reasoning, his thinking, and he did something stupid that in his right mind he would have never done. Now, here's my question. If that's what excess alcohol does, how do we know what stupid thing we'll end up doing beforehand? We don't. If it distorts my reasoning, my ability to think right and straight, and it does, how do I know what's going to happen? I don't. Okay? Um, and then in Genesis 19, there was Lot. Remember his daughters got him drunk, committed incest with him. So, and there are several other examples. But never in the Bible do you find an example of somebody got drunk and it was a good thing. But that's obvious, right? Because drunkenness is clearly forbidden in the Bible. Okay? Everybody good on that? Well, I don't think there's a question about that. Okay? Alright. Let me give you a couple of passages where um, people abstain from alcohol under the direction of God. God told them not to drink it. And let me show you what those are. Okay, take your Bible, put a marker in John 2, because I want you to see this. And I want you to turn with me quickly to, um, uh, let's just go to Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6. How many of you have heard someone talk about the Nazarite vow? Or heard the term Nazarite? Okay? Alright? Um, Samson had taken a Nazarite vow. His mother had before. Right. That he, he was to take the vow. Okay? He was to be a Nazarite. Okay? And, and by the way, the Nazarite, that was a vow. And you're going to see that in a minute. It was something, it was a commitment you made to God. Okay? Alright, look at um, Numbers chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or woman 
wants to make a special bow. A bow of separation to the Lord as a Nazarite. Please understand this was not something everybody was commanded to do. It was a special bow. It was unique based upon the individual and their choice. Okay? He must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or from other fermented drink. He must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as he is a Nazarite, he must not eat anything that comes from the grape vine, not even the seeds or the skins. Now, point. The Nazarite vow required that the person taking the vow not put into their body anything that had anything to do with a vine or its fruit. Period. They were not told not to drink wine because it was an alcoholic beverage and you shouldn't drink alcohol, but it's okay to drink grape juice. That's not what it says. They were to have nothing to do with the vine or the fruit of the vine. Not even the skin of the fruit. And notice it included raisins. Okay? Let's keep going. That's not all they were not supposed to do. Verse 5. During the entire period of his bowel separation, no razor may be used on his head. That's why Samson had the long hair. He must be holy until the period of his separation to the Lord is over. When a person took the Nazarite vow, it could be temporary or it could be for life. Samson's was to be for life. Because he was to begin to lead the children of Israel out of their disobedience. Okay? But it didn't have to be. It could have an ending. He must let the hair of his head grow long. Verse 6. Throughout the period of his separation to the Lord, he must not go near a dead body. Even if his own father or mother or brother or sister dies, he must not make himself ceremonial unclean on account of them because the symbol of his separation to God is on his head. Throughout the period of his separation, he is consecrated to the Lord. Now I want you to move down with me to verse number 13. Now this is the law for the Nazarite when the period of his separation is over. This is what happens when it's over with. He is to be brought to the entrance to the tent of meeting. By the way, let me interject another verse here. Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 9. The priests were commanded whenever they went into the tent of meeting to perform the ministry, they were not to drink wine prior to that. They were told they cannot drink wine prior to going in there. Okay? Now again, the context does not tell us. It's the word yayit. It doesn't tell us if it was alcoholic or not. It doesn't mean that the reason they weren't supposed to do it is because they might get drunk and mess up in there. However, that is a possibility if it was alcoholic. The truth is, the Bible does not tell us. We don't know. All we can do is draw a conclusion from an assumption. However, they were told not to do it. Okay, And that's what's happening here. Look at verse 14. There he is to present his offerings to the Lord. Now this is the one coming out of the Nazarite vow. A year old male, lamb without defect for a burnt offering. A year old ewe lamb without defect for a sin offering. A ram without defect for a fellowship offering. 
together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and a basket of bread made without yeast, cakes made of fine flour mixed with oil, and wafers spread with oil. The priest is to present them before the Lord and make the sin offering and the burnt offering. He is to present the basket of unleavened bread and is to sacrifice the ram as a fellowship offering to the Lord together with its grain offering and drink offering. Then, verse 18, at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the Nazarite must shave off the hair that he dedicated. He is to take the hair and put it in the fire that is under the sacrifice of the fellowship offering. After the Nazarite has shaved off the hair of his dedication, the priest is to place in his hands a boiled shoulder of the ram and a cake and a wafer from the basket, both made without yeast. The priest shall then wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. They are holy and belong to the priest, together with the, the breast that was waved and the thigh that was presented. After that, the Nazarite may what? Drink wine. Now, what does that mean? That means that the Nazarite, when they took this vow, that they were not to drink out or drink wine, it does not indicate whether or not the wine was alcoholic. We don't know. It's the word yayin. We don't know. Could it have been? Yes. Could it have just been grape juice? Yes. We don't know. However, it was the abstinence of a substance that was normally used at a meal. But they were also not to cut their hair. They were also not to touch a dead body. There were a lot of things they were not to do. Now the only reason I point these things out to you is there are places in the scripture where God instructed someone not to drink wine. And there are several others. John the Baptist never drank wine. He had taken a Nazarite vow. But the vow and the command not to drink the wine cannot conclusively be determined that the reason they were told that is because we're not supposed to drink alcohol. You cannot determine that. Now, if you believe it's okay, then you can go back to number six and say, see, after it was over, they could drink again. If you believe you should never do it, you can say, see, they weren't ever supposed to do that. But the truth is what you're doing is you're making an assumption. Because from the scripture, that cannot be clearly seen. This is why, by the way, turn back to John chapter 2. We're going to take a good look at this and then we'll be done. This is why God gives us biblical principles that govern our conduct relative to questionable things. Question. Are there things in life that the Bible does not clearly say yes or no about? Yes. Great example. Is it right to smoke cigarettes? Does the Bible say, Thou shalt not partake of tobacco in any form? Does it say that? No, it doesn't. 
It doesn't. Is use of tobacco a questionable thing in our society? Absolutely. That's why the Surgeon General has on the side of every pack of cigarettes. It can cause cancer. So can being born with a cancerous gene. The point is, it is a questionable thing. There are a lot of those in life. The believer still has a responsibility in his action and reaction and handling of questionable things. Next week, we're going to learn the principles that help us make decisions biblically whenever we face a questionable thing. And I am here to submit to you, alcohol and its use is one of those things. Because there is no clear, definitive answer scripturally as to whether or not it is okay to drink or put into my body alcohol. By the way, how many of you have ever used NyQuil when you were sick? How many of you know there is a children's version of NyQuil? I do. You know why there's a children's version? It is alcohol-free. Do you know the adult version is 25% alcohol? Has more alcohol in it than some light beers. Has more alcohol in it than a lot of wines. And we drink it. I know what some of you are thinking. Well, good, that's not alcohol. I'm going to go buy me a whole case full of nightclubs. Okay? So, and, and I'm, I want you to think. I don't want you to be robots running through life doing what you do as a believer because so-and-so said so. I want you to know what you believe. And I want you to know why you believe it. And when somebody comes to you and questions you, I want you to be able to give an answer to every man for the hope that's in you and why you believe. And the question here is not, is it okay to get drunk? We all know the answer to that. The question is, does God say emphatically and unequivocally it is wrong to put alcohol of any content in my body? If it is, then we cannot put alcohol in any form in our body. However, there are principles that govern that. Okay? Now, let's look at John chapter 2 real quick um, so we can go. Alright? John chapter 2. A couple of things about the background. Jesus is in Cana of Galilee the third day he's there. His mother has been invited to this wedding and Jesus and his disciples have been invited to this wedding. Now please remember, in the Jewish culture, a wedding was a great big feast. It was a party that cost the master of the feast and the bridegroom a lot of money. So you didn't just invite the whole town. Most um, commentators I read about this passage seem to think that Jesus and his mother are there because whoever the bride or the bridegroom was was probably related to their family somehow. That's why they're there. But for whatever reason, his mother's there, he's there, and his disciples are there. So they're all at this wedding. Then what happens is they run out of wine. Again, it's a Jewish party. 
That's what they did. They had bread and wine, among other things. Do we know whether or not it was alcoholic? Not just from the fact that she said they're out of wine. It's the Greek word oinos. Doesn't tell us. It can be wine in any stage or any form. Okay? But let's keep going. You know what happened? They found the barrels. He said, fill them with water. They filled them to the brim. Then he said, I want you to go take a scoop out of it and take it to the master of the feast. More than likely, the father of the bridegroom. Because he's the one that usually funded the feast. Okay? And he drinks it. Now, I want you to look with me at verse number 10. The, the master called the bridegroom aside. He got, he got the bridegroom. He brought him over. It said this, verse 10. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you saved the best until now. Now what is he saying? Now let's look at this verse. Let me break it down for you and give you just a few things about what this verse says, and hopefully we can understand this, okay? First of all, there are some words we need to understand. Everyone brings out the choice wine. The word choice there is the Greek word kalos, K-A-L-O-S. It means good in quality. It is in contrast to the Greek word agathos, used in Romans 8.28, translated, we know that all things work together for good, agathos. To them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. The word agathos means good so that it is beneficial to you. Kalos, the word used here, just simply means good in quality, whether it's beneficial or not. It's just higher quality. Okay? So you can't say that this is stuff that's beneficial for you. Because that's not the word. It's just the higher quality. Then, he uses the term cheaper wine. Well, this is the word eleison, which just simply means inferior in quality. Basically, the choice wine was the expensive stuff, and the cheap wine was the cheap stuff. No great revelation there. But that's all it is. That's what the words mean. Now, let's keep going. When do they normally, when he says everyone, when do they normally bring out the expensive stuff? At the beginning of the feast or at the end? At the beginning. So normally they bring out the expensive stuff at the beginning. Now, why does he say in verse 10 they do that? Because after they have drunk a lot, or in the NIV it says they've had too much to drink. The King James says they were well drunk. Not meaning drunk as in tipsy, but they drank a lot. They bring out the expensive stuff first, and after everybody's had too much to drink, they bring out the cheap stuff, because it doesn't matter anymore. But he said, you waited, and you brought out the expensive stuff at the end. Now, here's the catch. The phrase, when they've had too much to drink, what is the Greek term there? The Greek term is methuo. 
comes from the Greek root word methay, which literally means intoxicated or drunk. So literally what the Bible is saying here is normally you bring out the expensive stuff, then when everybody is drunk, you bring out the cheap stuff. Question. How does everybody get drunk? By drinking what? The expensive stuff. Did I see that? Y'all looking at me? I'm crazy. See that? They bring out the expensive stuff. They get drunk. Good. Go get the cheap stuff. But what did the guy say Jesus made? The expensive stuff. So what does that say? What does it seem to indicate? That the expensive stuff had some kind of alcoholic content in it. I've heard all kinds of arguments. But why would Jesus give people who are already drunk more alcohol? Why did Jesus allow sin to be in the world? Why does Jesus allow alcohol to be in the world at all? Why does Jesus allow pornography to be here? Why does God allow all the bad things that are in life to be here? It's the same principle. God didn't create the bad parts of things. We do. We do. Man abuses things. Several commentators I read said that Jesus may have been testing their sobriety, their self-discipline. By the way, this doesn't mean necessarily that everybody here was drunk. It just says that in a normal circumstance, the expensive stuff comes out, then when everybody gets drunk, they bring out the cheap stuff. But you brought out the cheap stuff at the end. That doesn't mean everybody at this feast was drunk. That's not what the Bible says. It doesn't mean they're all drunk. You can't determine that from the passage. What we can fairly safely determine is that whatever this wine was that Jesus made, it was of the highest quality, and normally, according to the verse, that higher quality wine had enough alcohol content in it that if enough of it was drank, they would get drunk. Now, they may have had to drink four barrels of it. We don't know. So what we know, we believe. What we don't know, we just have to say we don't know. Okay? So, here are the conclusions. Jesus did make wine. It is uncertain as to the alcoholic content of that wine. It's uncertain. It seems to indicate there was alcoholic content, but we cannot be absolutely sure that even if there was, how much it was. We don't know. There's no way to determine that. Okay? And here's the main conclusion. The main story, the main purpose of John chapter 2 is verse number 11. This, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Canaan and Galilee, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. That was the reason. 
And you're going to see next week, the issue about questionable things in our life as believers has got nothing to do with my right to do these things. Paul will clearly tell you, as you will see next week with me, that there are a lot of things in his life that were permissible, but not all of them were beneficial. This is not about our right to do these things, and nobody can tell me I'm wrong if I do these things. If that's how we view it, we've missed the whole point. The whole point is verse 11. That Jesus Christ and His glory is revealed in our life. Whatever that takes. So, that is my short dissertation on the Bible and the content of alcohol. Draw your own conclusions. Next week, today is interesting. Next week is practical. Next week, I hope will change your life. It will help us to make wise decisions in light of our testimony for Christ. Not only when it comes to alcohol. That's one small thing. But in every part of our life that may affect God's glory being seen in us. Okay? Any questions? We talked about a lot of stuff. Okay? If any of you, by the way, if any of you know of someone that struggles with this matter of alcohol, um, if you have friends who are being hurt by it and need help, if you will let me know, I will be glad to help you or them to find the help that they need. Um, it can and is very addicting. Alcoholism is a very real thing. My grandfather was an alcoholic. One of my brothers has actually been through rehab. Um, so it's, it's very real. And God has an answer. So if you know anybody that they need help, if you'll let me know, we'll do all we can to point them in the right direction and help them get help, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. We want more than anything in the world to honor you with our life. But Lord, there are things in life sometimes that are just difficult, and we don't understand. We need your help. Give us wisdom. Give us understanding. And most of all, give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that we will want to do and be all that you want us to be. Give us a great week. Protect us. Keep us safe. In Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week, everybody.